Hello and welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentation in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conrad, and for the last time this series, we'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact-checkers from the Full Fact team. Now, the big news story this week, of course, is the so-called Freedom Day, or lack thereof. Hundreds of thousands of people in the UK are self-isolating, having come into close contact with a positive COVID case. And it's not surprising, with around 50,000 people catching the coronavirus every single day. But are those people legally obliged to self-isolate? And are the rules surrounding this likely to change? To discuss that and what guidance, what the law says and what the government ministers have said about this, I'm joined by Full Fact CEO Will Moy. Welcome, Will. Hi, Alexis. Uh, i got to ask, have you been pinged? I am currently ping-free. You are ping-free. My goodness. But have, have you ever been pinged? Never been pinged. I've been pinged once. But uh, yeah, thankfully, uh, hopefully not going to be pinged in the near future because I'm planning to go away. So I could do without a ping. Fingers crossed for you. Now, Freedom Day wasn't so free for Sajid Javid, who tested positive for COVID over the weekend and has spent the week in isolation. Now, interestingly, it seemed for a moment that despite being close contacts of the health secretary, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were not going to self-isolate. They now are going to self-isolate. Will, what happened there in the space of a couple of hours? Well, it was more than a moment, as you say, it was ours. On Saturday evening, Sajid Javid tested positive for the virus. And on Sunday morning, Downing Street spokesperson confirmed that both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer were contacts, and therefore you'd normally expect them to self-isolate. But the spokesperson said that they will be participating in, quote, a daily contact testing pilot to allow them to continue to work from Downing Street. That was fortunate. Yeah, fortunate for them, particularly as they presumably wanted to be out there celebrating what they have christened Freedom Day. And uh, the Conservatives in the sort of morning media around were defending this idea. Robert Jemrick defended the Prime Minister and the programme, saying it's been around for a while and it's, quote, not just available for politicians. Uh, Even later that morning, Downing Street released a statement which said that the Prime Minister will not be taking part in the scheme and will self-isolate from checkers. They claimed, and this was obviously untrue, that they had briefly considered the Prime Minister taking part. That's not what happened. They said in public and defended in public a decision for the Prime Minister to take part. And it's frankly a bit insulting to the public to think that they can't remember what happened two hours ago. Let's look at what happens to the majority of the population. So what happens if you are called texted or emailed by NHS Track and Trace and told to self-isolate? Well, that's the thing. It's a bit difficult in each case. If you get called by Test and Trace, you legally must self-isolate for the length of time that you are told. And if you don't self-isolate, fine start at £1,000. However, if you use the app, you've chosen to use the app and download it, and if you get pinged by the app, you have no legal duty to isolate. The guidance from the government is that it is crucial that you self-isolate for health reasons. And if you don't self-isolate, well, you're very naughty, but nothing legally will happen. Mm. And again, the messaging has not been as crystal clear as some would have liked. We had Business Minister Paul Scully uh, basically saying that if you get pinged, it's it's advisory, but it's it's left to the businesses and the people who have been pinged to make an informed decision 
But again, we saw the number 10 spokesperson came out and said, no, absolutely not. If you get pinged, the advice from the government is you have to self-isolate. Will, do we know if the law, is that going to change? Is it no longer going to be a legal requirement to self-isolate? Well, the current plan in England is that from the 16th of August, those who have been double jab will no longer have to self-isolate as long as they can produce a negative test. That will apply from the 7th of August in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland are still considering how they'll handle it. So no, the rules aren't eternal. <laughs> if we've seen anything in this pandemic, we know they can change. They can change overnight if the government wants it. And what do we know about people who've just decided to delete the app? Yeah, well, the NHS says that the NHS COVID-19 app is entirely voluntary and you can choose whether or not to download it. You can uninstall it and delete the app whenever you like. This is another one of those things where people are choosing to do something to protect themselves and the people they care about. They don't have to. It's up to all of us to decide what we want to do. Um, Let's move on to another big topic of this week, which concerns vaccine passports. We saw queues of people heading to the nightclubs, but no sooner had they opened than on the five o'clock press conference on the Monday of Freedom Day, uh, Boris Johnson said that come September, you will need a vaccine passport to enter those nightclubs. So how might a vaccine passport work? Well, basically, it's just asking people to prove that they've been double jabbed before they can get into a place. Um, So a venue, a nightclub or whatever could use the passports to make sure that the risk of a virus spreading is reduced because the people who are all in that venue together have all had the vaccine. And I mean, do I already have a vaccine passport? I've got the NHS app on my phone. It's got the little QR code that says I've had both my vaccinations. Is that it? Yep, I forget the NHS app. Important, that's different to the NHS COVID-19 app. Or you can get a physical paper copy by calling 119. As long as you've been double jabbed for two weeks. And you can also get one for one of the following two reasons. You have reported a negative lateral flow or PCR test on the NHS website, but that will only last for 48 hours. Or you've recovered from COVID in the last six months and you've submitted a positive PCR test to the NHS. So, well... Will this actually go ahead? Does the government need to pass legislation for this to be enforceable? Um, Yes, they would. And the Labour Party opposes the idea of vaccine passports. And so it's really not clear whether it could become law. If Labour and Conservative rebels vote together, it could prevent vaccine passports happening. Uh, That doesn't stop private businesses from saying you can't come on our property without demonstrating that you're double jabbed but as a legally enforceable thing it requires a majority in the house of commons Mm, that's going to be another battle for boris johnson i think will the vaccine passports have had a sort of a long and checkered history if you can put it that way because initially there was chat from the government saying that they were thinking about it then they said no we're not going to do it now we are going to do it can you give us a sense of a timeline of how the vaccine passports have come about Yeah, it's clearly been a live debate within government and much wider than that. The sort of key point among all that chatter is Michael Gove going on the record on the 1st of December last year saying it is not the plan to introduce a vaccine passport in the UK. And since then, what we've seen is the government position on vaccine passports soften and soften. Do we understand why the government has changed its mind on vaccine passports? A lot of the debate has been about 
how we restore normal social life. So in February, the vaccines minister was ruling out vaccine passports for things like pubs and restaurants. He even called them discriminatory. By March, the prime minister was saying that pub goers may be asked to produce a vaccine certificate. A month later, 70 MPs were voicing their opposition to vaccine passports. Uh, so pubs are one of the battlegrounds we've seen. The other is large events and workplaces. Uh, obviously, we've seen some of the tests of really large scale sporting events require people to show that they are vaccinated to get in or to show a negative test to get in. Um, so the government in July said the businesses and large events will be encouraged and supportive to use the NHS COVID pass in high risk settings, like, for example, spending 90 minutes screaming at a football match. And then the final place where there's been a lot of talk about guaranteeing vaccination is in the care services in health and care professions. So if you're working in care homes, the government has said that you must be fully vaccinated from October unless you have a medical exemption. So there are a number of places where this pressure of should we be guaranteeing vaccination or not has come in, whether it's for economic reasons or for healthcare reasons. It's going to be an interesting showdown and a showdown that's going to have to happen pretty quick once the parliament resumes come September. I think September the 6th, I think it's been announced when they're coming back. Let's go through some other fact checks. Uh, these are concerning false claims made by Lord Sumption on BBC Radio Force Today programme this week. Let's hear his first one. The virus has not killed over 100,000 people. Uh, what has happened is that a, a very large number of people have died with COVID, but not necessarily of COVID. The definition is anybody who's died uh, within 28 days of a positive test is treated as a COVID death. So he seems to be saying that no more than 100,000 people have died of COVID in the UK. How can this possibly be true? It isn't true. The daily data on the number of people who've died after a positive test does include some people who died for other reasons. But we also have data from death certificates, which record whether or not COVID itself was the underlying cause. And that shows that up to the 2nd of July this year, 124,000 people died with COVID as the underlying cause of death in England and Wales alone. So it's his issue, the fact that we're using the word with there. So he's saying... These are people who died whilst having the coronavirus. But is he maintaining, do we think, I know we're not in Lord Sumption's mind, but is the point that he's trying to get to is that people died with COVID, not of COVID? Yeah, but actually the with COVID numbers are higher. With COVID is 153,000. So what we've seen a lot, not just from Lord Sumption, but online and so on, is people saying that because the daily death data includes everyone who died with COVID, that means that the true number of deaths is far lower, but it's not. The number of deaths of COVID, of COVID, is 124,000. And Lord Sumption saying no more than 100,000 people have died of COVID in the UK is flatly wrong, contradicted by people's death certificates. Well, let's look at his other claim. Let's have a listen. At the age which they have reached, they would probably have died within a year after, as even Professor Ferguson has, I think, admitted. I don't quite know how you come to that statistic, how you would be able to guess how much longer people had left to live. Well, we've heard a lot this week about the fact that a lot of people who died of COVID are relatively old. But it's not true to say that most people who die of COVID would probably have died within a year. It's not supported by the evidence. Research suggests that people dying of COVID lost far more than a year of life, probably about a decade on average. 
He mentioned Professor Ferguson, who said last year in March that the proportion of people dying of COVID in 2020 who would have died that year anyway, quote, might be as much as half to two thirds of the deaths we are seeing from COVID-19. You've got to remember that was March last year. And he was talking about what might be seen by the end of the year. He wasn't stating a fact. He wasn't predicting what the facts would be. And now we know far more. We've sadly been able to count the deaths and we've been able to see who died. I think the thing that makes people think this is the assumption that because life expectancy is about 80, you don't live much longer if you're 80 years old. That assumption is a mistake. If you reach the ripe old age of 80, you can actually expect to live significantly longer. And that, I think, is why people's intuition about how much life people might be losing is sometimes just wrong, because life expectancy for 80-year-olds is not the same as life expectancy for everybody who doesn't reach the age of 80. Okay, Uh, let's have a listen to his third false claim. The number of people who have died who are not in highly vulnerable groups uh, and have died uh, uh, without a sufficiently sufficiently serious comorbidity to appear on the death certificate is very small. It's a matter of hundreds and not thousands. I mean, Lord Sumption is wrong again on this point. It seems like he's talking about the number of death certificates that mention COVID as the underlying cause, but don't mention any pre-existing medical condition. If that's right, there were 15,883 of those deaths in England and Wales alone up to the end of March 2021. He says it's only hundreds, not thousands. Well, it's going to be at least 15,000. Absolutely. Um, All of those had COVID as the underlying cause. That doesn't include Scotland. That doesn't include Northern Ireland. And it only goes up to the end of March. So he's flatly wrong on that. And also, is he not underestimating the fact that pre-existing conditions cover a whole range of medical conditions and medical conditions that people are expected to live with for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but they are considered to have a pre-existing medical condition? Simply having a pre-existing condition doesn't necessarily tell you anything about whether somebody was likely to die during this period. But the bigger point, I don't think we need to overcomplicate this. He said hundreds, the real number is thousands. He was wildly off. Now, well, I listened to that uh, interview live. It was Amal Rajan who was conducting it on the BBC Radio 4 Today show. You've contacted the BBC, um, alerting them to the things that Lord Sumption got wrong. What's the response from the BBC been? For next day, the Today programme got the BBC News statistician Robert Cuff on the show to explain the statistical errors that Lord Sumption made. Uh, They said that they brought him on for his legal expertise and they wanted to correct the record on those points. And then rather awkwardly at the end, they sort of made a joke about, oh, we don't want to fact check our questions too closely. Yeah, we should have sort of fact checks on our <laughs> questions every day. No, that was a joke. No, we don't want I don't fact think you're saying that. Uh, there was a recognition from the presenters that they had not held him to account properly. What we haven't had from the show is, why did you let somebody whose expertise is in law talk about statistics, make a series of mistakes that are well-established and known to be wrong, and leave them go unchallenged? And I, I think the Today programme does need to reflect on whether it did a good job with its booking, with its briefing of presenters, and with its response to Lord Sumption misleading the public in that way. Can I uh, make an attempt to stand up for my fellow interviewer, uh, there, Amal Rajan, who I don't know. I've never met him. I have no association with him or with the Today Show, but I can only speak as as an interviewer myself. I know that many interviewers that I've spoken to 
post what happened with Lord Sumption and with others have really kind of thought, well, look, it just goes to show that you've got to be prepared for every eventuality when getting on guests. Well, I, I completely agree about understanding the difficulty of live broadcast, um, and I do enough of them. I've also talked to other interviewers who've made the point that when you've got a limited number of minutes, you've got to decide whether backtracking to pick up a correction or moving forward to get to the heart of the issue is the best use of your audience's time. There are hard trade-offs being a live interview. But this has been the story for the entire world for the last year, and the thing he made false claims about was how many people died. This is not unpredictable. This is not complicated. This is not the far edges of the topic. It's how many people died. And it's one of the most frequent topics of misinformation we see. The BBC has to be prepared for the fact that lots of people want to use it as a platform for misinformation. And when it gives people that platform, it has to be prepared to have that platform exploited. And I don't think they think seriously enough about the fact that they are part of an adversarial process where they are giving platforms to people who aren't in their business of trying to inform the public, which is what they do at their best, but are actually actually in the business of trying to misinform the public. Now, I'm not saying Lord Sumption was deliberately trying to misinform the public, but he was talking way outside his area of expertise. He was allowed to make a whole series of statistical claims, which he does not have expertise for when he was brought on to talk about the law. I think the BBC does need to reflect on whether they're being smart enough. This was not an obscure and surprising claim to hear. This was not a novel topic that we haven't been talking about. This was the pandemic. This was the number of people who died. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's been a pleasure doing this. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been fun. Ten episodes, all done. Thank you, Alexis. Uh, now, look, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends uh, to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial, and you can read more about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. Thank you for listening to this series. We'll be taking a break from full episodes for a bit, but... We will still be releasing our three-minute fact blasts every Saturday morning.